This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Stan Tatkin. Stan is a psychotherapist, a researcher, and an author who integrates neuroscience and attachment theory into his research into couples therapy. He has a clinical practice in Calabasas, California, and is the developer of a psychobiological approach to couples therapy, also known as PACT. Which sounds true, Stan has published the audio learning series, Your Brain on Love, The Neurobiology of Healthy Relationships. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Stan and I spoke about the role of the subconscious mind in how we relate to our partner, especially during times of distress. We also talked about how to develop what Stan calls an owner's manual for our partner. And finally, we talked about what it means to truly put our relationship first. Here's my conversation with Dr. Stan Tatkin. There have been so many new discoveries in the area of brain science that are now informing so many different parts of our lives. And Stan, you're looking at what we can learn from brain science in terms of love, in terms of healthy relationships. And I'm wondering, to begin our conversation, if you can share with us what some of the key gleanings are from the world of brain science that apply to our life and relationship? Well, what's interesting is that none of our brains, I think none of us um, have brains that do everything well. Um, We have skills, talents, and uh, deficits. And in the area of love, the, the, uh, the brain areas that specialize in social emotional interaction, or what Goldman used to, you know, Goldman called uh, emotional IQ. Um, these are the parts of the brain, the area of the brain um, that matter most uh, in the area of love. Uh, and th- this not only has to do with the ability to create excitement, um, you know, to create excitement uh, between two human brains, but also. I think uh, is important, if not more important, the ability to attenuate or uh, foreshorten uh, experiences that are negative, that are distressful. And, uh, you know, these areas of interaction uh, are so important to love relationships that people who are really, really good in these areas tend to do better and people who are not so good they tend to have problems. Now, Nestor, there's there's so much that I want to talk with you about. Actually, I feel like I'm bursting here, but let's just start with clarifying one thing because I, I am curious about this. Before we move on, what I really just want to know is: Have we discovered things since we've been working with functional MRIs and the ability to really see what lights up in different parts of the brain? Have we really learned new things about how to treat our partner? Or is this just a new way to talk about old adages we've always known? Uh, both. <laughs> I think both are true. Uh, it, I think understanding the brain gives us uh, more to work with, more to understand. Uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, behaviors that have been described over 
the millennia, um, human behaviors, um, have, you know, come under the, the you know, uh, um, uh, areas of uh, philosophy and uh, psychology, um, you know, including personality and, uh, uh, and and such. But but the idea that that uh, there is something going on in our brain um, that it's not so much about personality, but maybe about things that we are good at, things we're not so good at, things that we can do, and things that we can't do very well. Um, those things probably never could do very well. Um, and that is something that I consider as deficits. And I think when we think of personality or behavior or how people interact or how couples get along and how they treat one another, there are several ways to to, to think of, of that behavior or that interaction. One, like I said, is philosophical. Um, the other is, uh, you know, has to do with psychology. And uh, I would say that psychology has uh, has mostly engaged in now what we would think of higher cortical areas of you know of cognition of reasoning of planning um, higher cortical areas um, where you know uh, 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 talk therapy uh, tends to engage thinking thinking tends to engage memory and uh, in that process of talk therapy interaction. Um, there's a getting to some kind of unconscious process that we uh, didn't have a handle on before. That's one way of looking at things. But as we understand the brain, um, the, the unconscious, as it's been called in, in psychology, uh, or non-conscious, uh, really runs 95% of our day. Um, and when we think about how the brain operates, or at least how we think about it today, because five years, ten years from now, we may think differently, that there is um, a, a fast brain and a slow brain, or an automatic brain, and a, a brain that actually uh, takes time and resources to reason, to think, to plan, and to error correct. Uh, we are mostly that automatic brain. And I would s- suggest that that automatic brain is, is more sub-psychological. It's operating on a nervous system level of memory, and that we operate mostly by memory. Um, our intuition is memory. Our, um, our gut feeling is memory. Uh, almost everything we do, and especially in relationships, is automatic and is driven by memory. We are doing things most of the time never knowing why we're doing them. That's because this automatic part of the brain um, doesn't really inform us. We just do things based on what we have experienced in our lives. So I think neuroscience has brought that much more to light in terms of of how information is processed and how social-emotional acuity or social-emotional interaction is extraordinarily fast, faster than thought. I think what's nice about it is it, it kind of takes away the idea that people actually have control over some of these things or that people you know, uh, are doing things purposely. Um, in my work, working with couples, in understanding the brain, what it's brought to me is that mostly people don't know what they're doing or why, and uh, because of that, they're making things up all the time, um, doing the best they can, operating, again, according to their experience, which is memory. And, um, and what mostly goes wrong in these relationships is happening faster than people can actually um, identify. Now, the fMRIs and the PET scans and the SPEC scans and all of that stuff, uh, I think this is still at its infancy, and we're looking only at snapshots of the brain. We're not looking at moving pictures yet. And we all should know by looking at snapshots of anything, we we get only a partial idea, if even that, a very small idea of what is going on when we look at a snapshot of a person or an event. Um, we don't really know what, what just happened before. We don't know what, what's going to happen right after. And I think until we're able to do that with the brain and be able to uh, to to find reliable methods of of watching the brain in motion, in action. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of mistakes and, and miscalculations and, and um, um, 
misinterpretations about what the brain is doing. So I take this all with a grain of salt. I think it's interesting and it's useful to my understanding and to my students' understanding and also to my couple's understanding. But I also know that um, what we know now is going to be very different uh, in the next several years. So part of what I hear you saying in terms of the important takeaway is that the unconscious brain or the non-conscious brain, that's really what's running a lot of my reactivity, responsiveness, confusion in relationship. And if I can understand and appreciate that, that's going to help me in some way. And so that's the part I'd like clarity. How is that going to help me? I think in first part, to take away blame um, in, you know, that, uh, that you're at fault or your partner is at fault. Because here's the thing, when, when we are in distress, we tend to come up with theories about why we are in distress. And those theories are rarely pro-relationship. They're generally pro-self. Um, I'm in pain with you. There's something uh, I'm unhappy about in our, in, uh, in our interaction. And my brain is going to come up with reasons for why that is. And most of those reasons are going to be about you, um, something you're doing. Um, or it could be you know, something I'm doing and I feel ashamed or guilty about it. So I think on one level it's understanding uh, that we are animals and that we're operating um, properly, that our brain is doing what it's supposed to do, and that is it's getting us through life um, in the most uh, energy-efficient, you know, uh, resource-efficient manner. And that when we, when we get together with a partner, especially after we get to know them, after we start to feel committed, that partner, that process starts to go into procedural memory where all this implicit material lies, implicit material memories from our childhood and our security or insecurity in childhood. Our body remembers and our nervous system responds to what we see and we expect that what we see is real and we respond to it in kind. So if we understand how our brains work and that we're doing the best we can, we are memory machines, we're acting um, quickly, then we might be able to do certain things. For instance, I may behave in a reflexive manner towards you, and uh, it's a mistake, but I see that uh, I've hurt you. Um, I, can, I can fix that, repair that, make it right. I can, um, uh, I can apologize. I can do all sorts of things to modify that experience so that our experience doesn't go into long-term memory in the same way. In other words, as soon as I do something that causes distress, I do something that relieves it, or as best I can, for you and me. So that's, I think, one important thing. Um, we may do things reflexively based on our experience, based on our personality, um, but then what do we do after we do those things? Do we make it right? Do we care about the other person? Do we uh, repair that experience in a proper way. Um, there's lots of things we can do knowing how we respond because despite the fact that this automatic non-conscious brain that we have is very rapid, it's also very slow to change, which means it's highly predictable. We tend to do the same things, say the same things um, uh, all uh, over and over again, especially when we're under stress which makes us very predictable. It's not like I'm going to surprise myself by some kind of behavior. Um, I'm going to do the same thing again and again. What saves me from that is having enough relaxation and time to, uh, to uh, calm myself down or at least um, allow myself to be at a certain point where I can think. I have enough resources, enough glucose, enough oxygen to run these very fancy higher areas of the brain that can error correct, that can think in contingent ways, that can uh, think in relative ways, that can create something new. Um, these higher areas uh, are very resource hungry and, um, uh, and they're very slow and they, uh, they actually use up a lot of energy. But 
that is what allows us to do something different. It allows me to, if I see your face turn in a certain way or your voice sound a certain way, and I remember that as being dangerous to me and I react in a very hostile fashion. If I'm able or you're able, we're both able to do things to um, to make each other feel friendlier. Um, that would allow both of us to have more resources, time to consider what's happening and make changes because these higher cortical areas are quick to change, lower, slow to change. Um, and so I think understanding that as well, that we have a responsibility as partners to manage each other's emotional arousal state so that we don't start to view one another as predators. Very easy to do, by the way. We have brains that are built to keep us alive, and so our tendency to remember and to pick up uh, threatening cues or dangerous cues um, uh, is much greater uh, because of our need to, you know, to stay alive and not get killed. I think people understanding this and respecting it, that they have to really pay attention and not be dangerous and not be threatening to their partner, um, also goes a long way in understanding how uh, human beings work, how, the, how brains work, and so on. Um, uh, and that's another thing we try to do with our couples is we try to get them to understand how their faces and movements and sounds and things that they say can very easily be picked up by their partner as threatening. And we teach them to watch the face and reactions of the face so that they can they can actually work with each other in real time to uh, to settle each other down. That's really not the right word, settle each other down, but to regulate each other is really what I want to say. We call that interactive regulation, by the way. Interactive regulation is an, uh, is an eye-to-eye, face-to-face process of two people being in real time in each other's eyes and dealing with both excitement and distress. So let's make it really practical, Stan. A couple is in a situation, one person is feeling a level of distress about who knows what, I'm in a hurry, I'm upset about this. What are the types of strategies, sample strategies that the other partner could do that might be helpful instead of maybe their patterned response, which is to you know walk out of the room, something like that? It depends on the person. There are some people who require, uh, when they're upset or they're getting excited, they require their partner to move forward, uh, come closer. Some of these people um, uh, do better with touch. They do better when their partner moves forward and looks into their eyes in a friendly fashion and says something friendly or loving, Um, or maybe says something that is containing and regulating, like, uh, you know, hold on, you know, uh, uh, we'll do this right away. Look at my eyes. And, you know, to do something that is that, that contains or holds that other person. Um, uh, and these type of people who enjoy that kind of um, holding, they, they need their partner to, uh, to move toward them um, or, or to make physical contact with them. Um, for those people, uh, it can be very, very helpful especially if, if the face is friendly, the eyes are friendly, and, uh, and the person is moving in a way that is, that is loving. For other people, it's the opposite. Some people are built in such a way that forward movement uh, on them makes them feel more threatened. And for those people, um, at a distance, it may be uh, something else. It, it may be, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, you know, uh, why don't you take five minutes or ten minutes, do what you need to do, and I'll meet you outside. Um, it's something that that counters the other person's anticipation of being uh, trapped or aggressed upon or whatever. So it, it's hard to give you practical ideas without knowing the person. Th- this is, isn't a one-size-fits-all. This We want partners to begin to learn one another as they would if they had their owner's manual, and to know exactly what to do when. I mean, this would be kind of like 
you know, you, you have a, uh, a fire extinguisher, um, and there are three different kinds of fire extinguishers, an A, B, and a C, they're for different kind of fires. Uh, understanding, having the complexity to know that your partner may need one thing to help them uh, at one moment and may need something different at another moment, but uh, but they're not going. You're not going to have a hundred things that you're going to have to run through. There's only going to be about three or four things that will actually work with that partner to help them um, think again, calm down, restore their sense of safety, um, or this restore their sense of feeling loved. And that's something that I think people have to take the time to you know watch and learn and and uh, and try different things. Try different things, especially um, when things are not so heated. Um, kind of like going to the gym and practicing with small weights before doing big weights. But this is this is basically knowing your person and knowing how they how they work. Yeah, this idea of having an owner's manual for your partner, I think this is a very very interesting idea. And you know. In my own experience and talking with other people, often I hear people will say things like, God, I just don't know what XYZ person needs. I just don't, you know. So most of us, I think, or many of us, the idea of being an expert, to use your language, on our partner, this is hard stuff. How do we do this? How do we develop an owner's manual for our partner? I think if, if we put it into the context of child rearing, and particularly infancy, um, we expect a a mother or a father um, with a newborn infant to be preoccupied with that infant. Um, and Winnicott called it, you know, primary maternal preoccupation. This was a falling in love with kind of a, an obsession with the infant who is, uh, who is really not quite ready to be out in the world, is still um, tied by a psychological umbilical cord, um, where the 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 parent, let's just say the caregiver, is tasked with the responsibility of finding the baby, finding the baby, locating the baby. And this is an effort on the part of the caregiver, uh, being that hopefully they wanted a baby in the first place, um, that, uh, that there's a learning of that baby, um, of finding it, the process of attuning and misattuning, finding and losing the baby, finding and losing the baby. The, the the aspect of security that is uh, that we consider to be good comes out of the interest in refinding someone uh, uh, for whom we have lost, and we keep looking for them. This curiosity, this interest, this interest in knowing and finding this uh, this soul um, is part of what we understand to be this, you know, infant. Uh, caregiver relationship. Yet in adult relationships, that may be there in the very, very beginning in some manner during courtship. And I, I would suggest that a lot of that actually is driven by nature and biology to to get us to procreate. But that interest of finding the baby or finding the partner, being curious and watching, um, is something that should go on, I think, throughout Adult, adult relationships, and yet it doesn't. Most people do that maybe a little bit in the beginning, and then they drop the effort, um, and then they uh, basically don't look anymore. They're not curious. So I'm always interested in people who've been together 30 years, and they still don't know what the other person, um, what, what are the three or four things that will hurt the other person from childhood to grave, or the three or four things that they could say that would make that person feel loved. Um, uh, they don't know what what that is. Uh, or some people don't even know what the other person wants for their birthday because they don't pay attention. And I think that ba- basically speaks to a lack of interest or a lack uh, or taking for granted that people are easy um, and people are far from easy. People are perhaps the most difficult thing on the planet is another person. And um, and a lot of people are, are frankly quite disinterested or lazy in looking. Now, here's the, the problem, is that we don't like anything we can't handle well. We don't like our cars that we can't operate or our dogs that don't seem to be licking us or, you know, or doing the things we want them to do. We don't like babies who we can't understand um, and seem clingy or angry or colicky. We don't like anything that we can't manage. And so 
Um, that's how things, I think, turn badly in, in many ways. People find each other um, quite appropriate usually because our brains um, uh, select our partners uh, based on familiarity and, and recognition. So that part works okay. But once we have that person, um, if we if they're not easy to us, which, again, nobody is, if they're not easy to us and we take them for granted, we don't really look, we don't watch, wait, and wonder about them, um, then we're going to start to not like them, feel frustrated. I don't know what to do to make you happy. I don't know what to do to calm you down. I don't know what to do to get you to come home. I don't know what to do to get you to come to bed. And I don't like you um, because of this, because I don't know how you work. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the person complaining. Um, they're just not either interested or they're not looking carefully. Uh, they don't spend time trying to find the baby, or in this case, find the partner. And, uh, and then they suffer the consequences. So I think this is, a, this is uh, a, in many ways, our attitude about relationships, uh, that we think that relationships and people should be easy. People are far from it. And that uh, we should be looking at our partners in the same way as we're trying to understand our infant. Does that make sense? Well, I have a couple questions about it. Okay. Here's my first question. I could watch and look and be curious, or could I just ask my partner? Yeah, you could. And this is so interesting, because uh, remember I said that we mostly don't know what we're doing or why, and what we, and what we don't know we make up. You could ask me, but you're in dangerous territory there because I may tell you something to the best of my knowledge, but I may not even know. And so you could then do something, do what I told you to do or do what I said I want you to do, and it could really uh, explode back. Uh, you know, you could be very disappointed and say, well, gee, you know, I can't do anything right. I mean, you told me this is what you like. And it's quite possible that I don't know. It would be like saying to your baby, you know, uh, you know what, uh, uh, what would you like right now? Um, or to your child, for that matter. I mean, people don't necessarily know. It's up to me. Yes, I can ask you, and I can try that out and see if it works. Although it may not work in every instance. It may work in the mood you're in as you think about what would work for you. But what if, what if you're in a different mood? What if you're in a different place? And that thing that you said I should do doesn't work. Now, do I blame you for that? Because, you know, you told me and it's your fault. I think that would be the wrong way of looking at it. Um, I think that uh, understanding our partners is, is part of our job um, and that we can ask, but I, I don't know that uh, how we respond to what we want and don't want is always that reliable. I, I really don't. Okay. And then my second question, and this is something that I've heard that is a criticism, I think, of attachment-based therapy in general, any kind uh -huh. of therapeutic approach that's working with an attachment-based strategy, which is, you know, it's one thing to be a parent dealing with a baby, but we're two adults dealing with each other. Can you really take some of these learnings that come from how parents are most successful with children, how parents regulate their babies. And is that really the right way to be looking at two adults dealing with each other, taking those lessons and applying them to an adult relationship? Well, attachment theory is limited. It's a biological theory that really focuses on safety and security. It really has nothing to do with love or eroticism sex, or even, for that matter, child discipline. So understanding its limitations, I think, is important. But the, the rules of safety and security, in other words, what makes two individuals feel uh, safe and secure um, and create an ecosystem or environment that allows them to move through life um, in such a way that they have more resources. They have more resources available to slay the dragons or to deal with the difficult situation at the, in the boardroom um, or to deal with the in-law or the parent. This is really the question. Is, um, if we look at infant attap attachment and try to do a one-to-one -one analysis, of course it breaks down for one thing, 
there's an asymmetry in childhood that there isn't in adulthood. These are that's a symmetrical relationship, um, and, and so uh, so we have to think of it differently in that regard. But the rules of safety and security, what makes um, uh, two people in a dyadic system um, feel uh, that they're tethered to one another, that they're that they're connected, that you kind of like you know being out in in in, in space uh, with the space station, you know uh, being tethered to that space station makes a big difference than if you're just free floating out there. Um, do we feel that with at least one other person uh, that we created for ourselves? Again, we don't choose um, our parents. Um, and we don't choose how uh, that relationship is going to go in childhood that's chosen for us. But in adulthood, we're expected to create um, a social contract, um, you know, a a set of agreements and principles that are mutually beneficial, good for me, good for you. And when we're thinking in terms of long-term relationship, and I would suggest that nature has no plan for long-term relationship, only has a plan for procreation, Maybe a four-year plan, uh, and then and then switching partners and mixing up the gene pool again. But this idea of long-term relationship is basically a human in, in, uh, invention. Uh, but in order to to do that, we have to sort of reimagine what what goes into um, long-term dyadic relationships. There are certain principles that are that are consistent with attachment. One is um, that we trust each other. Uh, that um, you know that we look out for each other, we have each other's backs. Um, that we, uh, and maybe this is going further than you would agree, but that we tell each other everything. We're the first to know things, not the second or third. That our relationship uh, is protected uh, and comes first. Um, that we take each other's uh, distress seriously and we deal with it post haste, right away. Um, there are certain things that we do for each other that is that comes out as a kind of a quid pro quo um, that we do for each other to create this environment uh, where we feel uh, that we have a secure base to go to, a home that we like being in, basically the home being the virtual relationship, the relationship is, is virtual home, a place we can relax and be ourselves. This is based on an agreement between two people to do things because they can, not because they, you know, their personalities are such that they have to do it this way or that way. Um, I think that is is where attachment is still relevant to the adult pair bonding experience, um, that it has to be, I think, in some way based on true mutuality, um, and, and, that, uh, and that's based on attraction, and not fear or threat, uh, that people are not um, uh, making one another feel insecure, the relationship feel insecure. Because I've seen the difference between partners who feel insecure and partners who feel secure, and there's a vast difference between those two. And the same thing we see in childhood. You've said a lot of really interesting things, Stan, so I'm going to pull a couple of these things out. One, putting our relationship first. I'm curious to know what that means to you when a couple does that, what that looks like. Well, consider um, first, just so I can make my point even better, taking romance and sexuality out of this. There are plenty of primary attachment uh, relationships that are, um, that are same-sex, opposite-sex, and non-romantic. Um, for instance, let's take, you know, the uh, the the uh, uh, policeman, policewoman, whoever, but the person who is out there on the field and has a partner, the system really engenders a sense of camaraderie, but also loyalty. And partners, uh, you know, are the go-to people. They watch each other's back. They tell each other everything. Sometimes to such an extent that their marriages, if they have any, um, suffer because their relationship seems to be coming first. Um, and it's necessary in a sense because their lives depend on it. Uh, this is also in military organizations um, or fire department. I mean, you see this all over. Um, so it is not just limited to romantic relationships. People can have these secure um, uh, relationships um, that are non-romantic. 
but in a couple, um, uh, a romantic couple, putting their relationship first means that um, they are both generals, and uh, they are not. One of them is not relegated to that of soldier, or, or they are king and queen, and one of them isn't relegated to pawn. Um, that they're they're important characters, and they treat each other as such. And third things and third people that want to come in and encroach on that system um, can only do so with their permission. They don't just willy-nilly allow others to come in and relegate the other partners to third will. Um, we find that, at least I find, but I, I think uh, this is, uh, you know, this is intuitively, uh, I think, will feel correct to most people, uh, that people who routinely mismanage these third things or third people uh, to disrupt the primacy of the attachment relationship, that romantic attachment relationship, um, do so at their own peril. And eventually that relationship does, uh, does um, waste away. Um, there's something about the human pair bonding experience. We're still primarily dyadic creatures. And when we form these dyadic bonds, um, one person or the other person is generally going to not like it if, uh, if the relationship uh, gets turned into not primary but secondary or tertiary. It, it just doesn't seem to work very well. So this idea of putting the relationship first means understanding sort of the biological nature of, of dyadic uh, human pair bonding, um, uh, that it doesn't really suffer um, anything other than that. And this, by the way, is important with polyamory, um, with polygamy uh, marriages, uh, but also I think more strikingly and obvious, and not so obviously, with um, blended families, um, couples that make the same mistake over and over again. And because there's uh, there's the complexity of numbers now with more people, more kids, more in-laws, more extended family, people will make use the excuse that there's too many people to manage. That's why the relationship, again, is failing. But most often I see that they're making the same mistake they made at the beginning, and that is that they don't protect the primary dyad. Um, they don't put the relationship that relationship first. And so one or the other partner begins to feel left out, begins to feel um, dismissed, and this builds resentment, unfairness, injustice, and the relationship will... Uh, eventually fail. So when you talk about thirds, a third could be children, putting your kids before your partner? It could be uh, putting your kids before your partner. And this is really touchy because the things I'm talking about here require a certain complexity because if, if uh, it can be easily misunderstood um, uh, as, oh, you know, uh, let's put ourselves first. Let's keep the kids in a closet and go away for seven days on vacation. And people have actually have done this. It's been in the news. No, I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm not talking about uh, the selfishness of, of two people um, who are ignoring uh, uh, those around them or people who uh, they're responsible for. But I am talking about uh, something more subtle, and that is uh, in... in situations and systems where there there are two people and there are interests between those two people, there are always going to be third elements that uh, are going to encroach on that system. Um, it could be a child. It could be an in-law. It could be a best friend. Uh, and then the, the question is, in matters of resources, in matters of who's going to lose any particular gambit for resources, will it be one partner or the other partner, or will it be the third Thing or person, and uh, I would suggest that it should not be either partner very much. Um, that if there's a choice between the interest of the partnership and some third interest, that that third interest should probably lose most of the time. You say most of the time. What would be the exceptions? I think there are times. Um, when um, when we make mistakes and we choose one person's interest or one thing over our partner, um, we do this with work, we do this with uh, perhaps substances, we do this with a child, we do this with an in-law, best friend, um, and, we, and we do that and then we have to repair it. Okay, Stan, but let's just take an example. Let's say somebody's mother is 
really needing time and attention and maybe she's ill, something like that. And the partner says, you know, look, I need you now, blah, blah, blah. And now this individual feels totally torn, torn between two loves, two commitments. How do they navigate that? Again, this goes back to the principles that the couple has, um, that they have a duty uh, to serve one another and to make sure that uh, that that they're providing uh, uh, support and distress relief to their partner. Um, uh, that would be, I think, a case where um, where one partner uh, is is making a demand um, that is not truly mutual. That's not truly good for me. Good for you. It's just good for me. Um, and so that would be taken up. That would have to be taken up in the partnership as uh, as a problem um, of fidelity in the system. So when we think of fidel, when I think of fidelity, I don't think of you know cheating. I don't think of sex. I think of what are our what what binds us together. Why are we together? Um, what do we do for each other that we couldn't hire somebody else to do? Um, these are things that I think are far more. Um, uh, impressive uh, to think about and to hash out um, than what people commonly think of in terms of, you know, their vows or what they think is ex- is expected in love relationships. Um, a truly mutual couple, a couple that has each other's interest in mind, that have principles that support each, um, I would not expect a partner to say, choose me or your sick mother. There would be a problem there in that system in terms of understanding what a truly mutual system is. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, now let's say somebody's listening to this and says, okay, put the relationship first. But in my life, what I've put first is my own spiritual development, my own path with God. That really comes first. I would never put anything before that. How would you respond to that person? Well, first I should say I don't really care about what arrangements people make. Um, it's not up to me. I don't have any ideology really about this. Uh, uh, I don't. This is not a religion for me. So, um, if somebody said that to me, that's fine. Um, my, the, the, uh, since I'm a couple therapist, I'd be looking to the partner to see if they're okay with it, um, and then that would be something for the two of them to hash out. But, um, but I have people coming in saying, I don't think we should just love one person let alone, you know, I have a spiritual practice or a spiritual belief that comes first. Um, I have a, a group that comes first. The, I, I don't have any family. Um, this group that I've been dedicated to has been my family. And either you um, respect that and join this family or just tolerate that, that they come first. Um, so it could work out that way. Or it could work out that, you know what, I like to love a lot of people. And I have a lot of lovers, and I like that. And I think that's the way it should be. Um, and then you will either agree to that, <laughs> or you'll say, um, you know, that's a deal breaker. So uh, I just want to say that, that this is not, you know, I'm not talking about what people, I think, uh, you know, there's no perfect world here that I think everybody should be uh, putting the relationship first and doing it this way. But couples, people who do want a long-term relationship and are finding it hard, um, when they make, uh, when there's one person who says, this comes first to me, 
whether it's, you know, my child comes first and you come second. My God comes first and, uh, and my practice. You know, um, all of that um, can become quite dangerous to the other partner. And um, if they both agree uh, on this, uh, this idea, excuse me, I don't have a problem with that. But often they disagree because one person feels it as insecure, unfair, unjust, insensitive. Um, and that's where the problem will, will lie. Um, I, think, I think two people agreeing to disagree and saying, well, this is where we part is fine. It sounds like what you are saying, though, is that to create a relationship that has a high level of safety and security, which, as you've pointed out, has certain benefits that come with it, that in order for that to happen, both partners need to agree to put the relationship first. Is that accurate? Yes, but but I would go further than that. Um, I I would expect people... uh, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg, uh, 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 a brilliant professor at Harvard, came up with uh, um, uh, a moral um, development, stages of development, moral development, and his colleague Carol Gilligan uh, later improved on it, uh, noticing a gender problem, um, that uh, gender bias. But the, the point is, is that um, Kohlberg and Gilligan expected people when uh, saying what they believe, to be able to defend it, to be able to say, why do you believe that? Why is that important? Why should somebody do that? And I think when it comes to um, relationships that, are, that people want to have uh, long-term, I think between two adult minds, there should be thoughtfulness and reason. Why is this a good idea? Um, why put the relationship first? Why is it a good idea for me, and why is it a good idea for you and us? It has to serve a personal good and a mutual good. So I wouldn't be so uh, um, I wouldn't want it to be so lazy as to say, you know, um, yes, you should do this. I think people have to really be able to reason around it and and explain and argue why it's a good thing for them personally and why it's a good thing for the other person personally and why it's a good thing for them together to do this. Otherwise, it won't work. Um, I, I, I think it's equally important for people to do this in the issue of monogamy. Um, why, be, why be monogamous? I can often tell how people's answers whether they'll actually be monogamous or not by the, the, the lack of complexity or complexity of their response. Um, I have to be able to, if I'm going to engage in something with you um, that's going to be good for both of us, I have to be able to sell it to you. Um, I have to be able to believe in it myself. Otherwise, I won't do it. And that's really the key here, is that we're, we're talking about now conscious principles of engagement, rules of engagement that serve both of us that we believe in deeply. And uh, uh, we, we do these things um, depending on how deeply we believe in them, um, because it's it's for the times when we don't feel like adhering to these principles, ideas. Um, that's when we need them. It's not uh, it's not at any other time, uh, because we mostly do what we want to do. Does this make sense? You are making sense. I want to tease out one item you said when you were talking about the qualities that help build a safe and secure relationship, in your opinion. And you said, you know, well, you may not agree with me on this one. And you were talking about telling your partner everything, having them be fully informed. And I know in your work, one of the things you've mentioned is that you think it's even valuable to tell your partner about your fantasies or crushes and that part of putting them first is that they know all of these things. And I did have a moment where I thought, really? Is that really going to be helpful in my relationship? Here's again, um, this gets very difficult because um, like all things, uh, religion, politics, (laughs) psychology, um, depending on the mind we're addressing here, um, uh, it's very easy to take things the wrong way and to simplify or oversimplify these uh, these ideas. So um, tell each other everything. Well, does that mean that I'm rude and I'm uh, narcissistic and I just, it's all about me and I tell you things even though they hurt you or scare you? Um, no, that's not what I mean. 
I, it's the spirit I'm talking about, that I've picked somebody, I've picked you, and if I've picked you to, to be that point person or that person in my life, why wouldn't I want to be myself fully and, uh, and let you know my mind as, as well as I know it, which may not be very well, but I, you know, I, as well as I know it, um, and you do that with me. Again, we're talking about uh, home here, home being a place that we create uh, that's attractive, where we want to be, where we are ourselves. And, um, uh, and so it's the spirit I'm talking about here, not, um, not, the, not the actual uh, the details of, oh, gee, you know, I'm going to tell you, uh, I, just, uh, I want to have an affair with somebody I just saw. Um, that would be, I think, unskillful and, and probably uh, somebody who doesn't understand this. Um, it's the spirit of telling each other everything, and the idea here is why not? Why would I want to? Why would I want to to hold myself uh, as unknown and secret um, uh, from one person, the one person that I chose to do this? Um, why not do that? Why not utilize you in that way, and you utilize me in that way, uh, rather than pay for a therapist or? Uh, go to a priest or go to my friends and sprinkle myself all around why not uh, why not you and I, I that's really the spirit of this it's not uh, it's not about telling each other everything um, you know at the cost of the safety and security of the relationship okay so in this conversation we've placed a very high value on creating a relationship that's safe and secure and I'd love to know from you why you think this is such an important way to be for you. Why is this so valuable to you? Well, I have experienced, I mean, being now 58, I, I have, you know, experienced the opposite of this in my life. Um, I saw my parents, my parents uh, did have uh, a safe and secure relationship. They demonstrated that in front of me and in front of my siblings. Uh, but, uh, but I wasn't always that way. And um, uh, I made, you know, my own errors in relationships. And I had a marriage prior to the one with Tracy uh, today um, that, that failed, and I failed. And I know what it's like. Uh, I know the alternative. I know what it's like to, um, to be in a relationship where, um, both parties love each other. We both, my ex-wife and I, loved each other, but we uh, we made lots and lots of mistakes um, about uh, such things as what comes first and uh, repair and knowing how to work each other and manage each other and how to um, calm each other down, to know how to uh, stay friendly to each other. Made so many uh, different mistakes that I can say that that experience was not only the for me you know some of the best of times but the worst of times and uh, when that relationship ended, um, I was crushed enough and felt enough regret um, to really think about it very deeply at the time I was um, already teaching and working as a as a therapist, but I was interested in working with mother infant pairs and preventing personality disorders, because that was my field. Um, but uh, I think because I was going through such a terrible, terrible time trying to reconcile what I had lost and how I had lost it, um, that uh, my, own, um, my, my own perseveration on the, on, on the subject, along with my learning at the time very deeply about the brain and about the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, I started to... Um, my work started to shift, and I started to think in terms of how did I go wrong? How did this go wrong? Um, now, at the same time, John Gottman came out with his research, which was groundbreaking, and uh, and uh, and that was also encouraging to me. So, can you summarize from that what was the points of John Gottman's research that was important to you? Well, Gottman. Gottman was the first, I think, to, to come out and say to couple therapists, you know, I know you guys like your pet things that you do, but um, I don't think you pay much attention to what actually works. And maybe it's because you don't care or maybe because you don't 
you don't know. And so here's this body of research, and this is what actually works or doesn't work, and this is what we know about relationships, adult romantic relationships. And these are the markers that we see that will lead to divorce and uh, will not lead to divorce or lead to, you know, to something, you didn't talk in terms of security then, but lead to a stronger relationship. And so um, so it kind of shook the, the clinical community up in a good way um, to reevaluate what worked, what didn't work. It wasn't that long ago that marital therapy, couple therapy, was a, was really the the joke um, in in the therapeutic community. Um, the, the statistics were horrible, um, and and people were going to couple therapy. Mostly, I think it failed because there were too many people dabbling in it. It's a specialty. People, I think, dabbling in it aren't going to do very well. But also, there wasn't science behind it. There wasn't any real discipline behind it, and so. Um, couple therapy really was a wash. People would go into it, and uh, and uh, uh, there wasn't anything to suggest that you know going into couple therapy would do anything for you at all. Then Gottman came along, and um, uh, and then things started to change. Um, Harville Hendricks' work with imago therapy uh, was showing improvements. Sue Johnson came along with her emotionally focused therapy. Again, more improvement. Um, you know, people started to come up with more thoughtful um, approaches. Uh, 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 you know, and paying more attention, I think, to the sciences, paying more attention to uh, uh, areas that uh, clinicians previously ignored. Um, so that's why I say he played a very important role. For me, he played an important role in uh, in uh, accentuating uh, what I'd already started learning about the autonomic nervous system and the role of arousal regulation as being very key very key. And I'd say more than attachment, uh, that is uh, an area that, that is most important to me that I think is the, the, the biggest uh, area of improvement in my work is the focus on, on the autonomic nervous system and threat uh, uh, between two, two people. So um, in my own marriage now with, with Tracy, um, who was uh, uh, somebody who I had a crush on in junior high school. Um, we re-met uh, re in our 50s, both of us having gone through a uh, previous marriage. Um, I, I started to enjoy um, what I've come to see now as secure functioning relationship. That doesn't mean that the, the parties uh, are secure in, in the research sense. They, they wouldn't maybe test out as secure, but the relationship operation, as, as it is, um, is, is functioning in a secure fashion um, uh, based on some of the principles I gave you. And it's really been through that marriage also, along with my own work, where I've been able to live this stuff um, and see and feel the benefits of it. So I guess I'm a I guess the worst thing uh, uh, for people in our field, uh, scientists or clinicians, to be true believers, but I, I'm kind of a true believer. A true believer in? In, um, in what I've been teaching and what I've been talking about. Not that I'm excellent at it, <laughs> or, uh, or that I don't uh, uh, do a lot of things that everyone does uh, in screwing things up, but, um, uh, but I do... Uh, I do believe that there is something very important to the idea of secure functioning uh, between two people. But I'll go further than that. I really believe that there is, uh, uh, there is a, um, a problem, a growing problem, of people feeling more alienated and alone in their lives, whether they're with a partner or not, and that that is contributing to a lot of problems, um, health problems, mental problems, and so on. So um, I think, above all, the, the, uh, the importance of close connections, of physical contact, I mean, uh, hugging, holding, uh, um, uh, of, our, you know, of having very close uh, connections uh, in our lives, social networks, whether we're partnered or not, is, uh, is so important. Um, that there's, uh, there's been a group uh, of, of people um, who have been getting together 
and uh, there is a nonprofit organization that uh, I, I shouldn't say anything about yet because it hasn't been announced. Um, that's going to be dedicated to uh, to shifting the culture back towards um, towards uh, connection um, and dependency rather than uh, where we've been going, uh, which is toward, a little bit more towards autonomy and independence at the cost of dependency and much more alienation. Stan, this will be the end of part one of our conversation, but I very much want to have a part two with you because I think your work is so important and so helpful to people really struggling to find the depth of connection that's possible in relationships. So we'll talk again in part two. Thank you. I've been speaking with Stan Tatkin, and he's created a new audio learning series with Sounds True called Your Brain on Love, the Neurobiology of Healthy Relationships. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thank you.